Thanks for listening to this Ave Maria radio podcast. Be sure to share it with your friends and family and across social media. Building the church so we can bless the nations. This is Ave Maria radio. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta with me, Steve Ray. Steve, uh, probably best known right now for leading pilgrimages to the Holy Land, to Rome, uh, other sites. Just got back from Fatima, in fact. Steve converted to the Catholic faith in 1994 and penned the book Crossing the Tiber, which is a great testimony story with an intense look at baptism and Eucharist uh, in the uh, scriptures and in the fathers, uh, apostolic fathers. Upon this rock was a book uh, focused on the papacy, and uh, he's also, over the years, produced, hosted and produced the Footprints of God DVD series. He's been to the Holy Land more than, what, 180 times still? Okay, pushing 200 now. And he also writes Bible studies for the Catholic Scripture Study International. Uh, you can follow his work at catholicconvert.com. Steve and I are going to be together this fall, November 1st through 4, in St. Augustine, Florida. And by the way, we should mention that. I uh, would love to have you join us for this pilgrimage to the uh, earliest uh, continuing uh, s- site for uh, American towns and cities and villages. Uh, Catholics were here first. Yep, 55 yeah. years before the Protestant pilgrims. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing to think that and how that tends to be minimized in the popular telling of the story of the United States. Uh, More information on that, by the way, go to catholicconvert.com or over to avemariaradio.net. Today, Feast of St. Matthew. Yes. Um, Let's uh, talk a little bit about Matthew as the man. Uh, When people think Matthew, they think tax collector. IRS agent. Yes. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Not beloved. No. Yeah. Actually, worse than an IRS agent in their minds because he was one of them. And imagine, for example, that China takes over the United States someday and occupies us, and they hire the priests to be the tax collectors yeah. of all the people or your, or some uh, something like that. His name is Levi, which implies yeah. that he comes from the tribe of the priests. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. That's right. And so twice he's referred to as Levi in Mark and Luke. And that would imply—he has two names, by the way. Not not like Peter, where he got a new name. He right. had two names, Levi and Matthew. And, Matthew. and uh, Levi implies that he's from the priestly uh, clan, the mm-hmm. tribe. Well, then for him to be collecting taxes for Rome, this I don't think that people can even realize how bad this is. And he would be from the local community of Capernaum. And that Rome would contract and subcontract this job out. And they could collect as much taxes as they want. But Rome said you have to give us X amount of shekels. Okay. If you'd collect double that, that's fine. Remember Zacchaeus, also a Jewish tax collector. Mm-hmm. And he said, if I've defrauded, I'll give them back four times more. And I'll give because he had taken and stolen so much money. Right. So then the, he would go, he would know the people in Capernaum. He knows how much money Peter makes. He knows how much fishing is done. He's right on the border between two provinces. And you had to, if, if you caught your fish in Bethsaida, where Peter and, and Andrew and Philip were born, you'd have to cross by 
um, Matthew, Levi, to get down to Magdala where you'd process the fish. Huh. And you'd have to pay taxes every time. He sat in his, I know right where his tax booth is. It's right on the road. It's called the Via Maris, the way by the sea. And everybody had to go past there. And when you went from one province to another, they paid the toll and he collected it. Now, he was one of them. He was a, a Jewish priestly family collecting people. He was like the worst possible traitor. And even Jesus, when he talks about you're going to, the, the, all he says the tax collectors and the harlots. Yeah. He, he groups yeah. them in with the sinners and the harlots and all of the worst of society, the tax collector. And if you, if they don't listen to you, treat them as a tax collector. Yeah, he and says. that's that was worse Because yeah. they were traitors. Yeah, that's amazing. People. I mean, it's amazing when you think that he may have had priestly lineage, right? Yeah. Because uh, that, oh, how the mighty have fallen here. Yep. Um, and so he's he basically seen as a betrayer. He's a he's oh, treason. He's, he's a treasonous. treasonous to the Jewish people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they, and they must have had kind of like a fraternity or um, an order of them because after Jesus calls him, it says uh, he made a great feast in his house. Levi did after Jesus called him. He leaving everything. He got up and walked away. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors there. <laughs> so they must have had like a fraternity yeah. because nobody yeah. else would talk to him. You know, they were like the despised. So they had their own little uh, group or association. You know, yes. where they got together. And and Jesus is reclining at table with tax collectors. Oh yes, uh, was discrediting to yeah. him uh, in the eyes of the Pharisees. And not only that, but it was also unclean because these folks would work on the Sabbath. They were also dealing with Gentiles all the time. Mm -hmm. They're having this even the contact with this money, and the Gentiles would make them unclean. And Jesus then goes in and eats with these ceremonially unclean, defiled people, yeah. and they're in there eating and drinking, and they just uh, the Pharisees just pull their hair out. Yeah. Um, do we know what the scriptures don't often give us uh, much of the interior action in a man's mind? But do we know what might have tripped him? Uh, what went off in his soul? when he decided to follow Christ. I sent you a picture by Caravaggio, mm -hmm. and it's called The Call of Matthew. And it's one of those paintings, Caravaggio, even though he was kind of a rogue himself. <laughs> he was, yes. He, he painted some of the most insightful, beautiful oh, yes. artwork of Scripture, especially yeah. Jesus. And, and, and it, if somebody wants to, just go Google Caravaggio, call of Matthew. It's everywhere on the internet. But you have Matthew there at a table with two young guys. One of them has a sword and two older guys that are very concerned with the gold coins in front of them. <laughs> and if you see Jesus and Peter is in front of Jesus there, and Peter's kind of like going to hold those guys off if they come after Jesus. But Jesus has his hand kind of limp. It's, it's exactly the same hand of God creating Adam oh, yes. in the Sistine Chapel. That's right. And look at the look at what's happening there. He's calling Matthew, but he's kind of like a new creation. Mm -hmm. You are a sinner. You're a rogue traitor uh, tax collector, 
but he's pointing at him just like God did in the Sistine Chapel when he creates Adam and his fingers exactly the same way. He's offering him a new creation, a new life. And look at Matthew. He's yes. the bearded guy there. Yep. His finger is like, are you talking to me? <laughs> yeah, who, and, me? Yeah, me, yeah. And, but his left hand is still on the gold coins. <laughs> so you, this painting is masterful because <laughs> all the motion has stopped. Everything has stopped. He has the wealth of the world. His left hand is on the coins. The second is pointing to me. This is a difficult decision. Are you talking to me? Uh, is it? But the gold coins are here. It's a moment of decision, and Christ's hand points to him. And uh, Matthew, I think, at that point, it had to be the grace of the Holy Spirit. But it also had, you know, Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah. And they obviously, yeah. even the way I love the way Caravaggio, they're just like adoring these coins or just counting them and feeling them, you know. Well, this is this is very heady stuff. It's rich. You can buy anything. You've got the gold. But all of a sudden now it says... Jesus said, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He didn't even say, let me put this in the bank. Let me think about it till tomorrow. He just got up and followed Jesus, which is quite an incredible thing, like Peter with his boats. He 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 had a moment where he wasn't attached anymore. Yeah, uh, he became yeah, attached. Yeah, beautiful. Um, Jesus uh, has an inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John, um, and I'm wondering, do we know anything about the social relationships among the other disciples? Well, I was thinking about that today, Al, in preparation for this. And I, this was a motley crew of 12. If you think about this, Matthew is a traitor to the Jewish people. He is in cahoots in cooperation with Rome against his own people. But you have somebody else called James, a, a Simon the Zealot. Yeah. And a zealot is a, is a revolutionary against Rome. Sure. So you've got these two guys in yeah. this group of twelve. May well have been a friend of Barabbas. Oh, right? he could have yeah. been a friend of Barabbas, and yeah. he was a he was a revolutionary against Rome. They were the kinds taking up arms like guerrilla fighters going against Rome. So you've got these two political op opposites. Don't think that during the around the campfire at night there weren't discussions, and Jesus would say, "Calm down, boys. Calm right. down. Stop right. it." So you, you have those two guys. The, the intrigue, the political and conflict uh, intrigue and arguments, I just can't imagine. You've got fishermen. You've got Thomas, a doubter, and I call him Eeyore because every time he's mentioned, oh, we better go to Jerusalem and die with him. Oh, I'm not going to believe unless I... And every time he's like Eeyore, the sky's falling down. So you've got the doubter. You've got two young guys, James and John. Maybe James isn't as young, but I, th I see John as like a young teenager. Yeah. He, want, he wants to sit and Jesus' right hand, and he wants to call down fire from yeah. heaven and burn up the Samaritans, and Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder, Which had right. to be done with a smile, don't you think? Yeah. A chuckle? To, you guys are this bow yeah. energies. Yeah. So you've got those guys. Then you've got Judas, who they knew he was stealing the money, and yet he's in charge of the, of the group's finances. He's the mm -hmm. banker for the group. Now, it's not Matthew. He already gave up his coins, but Judas is carrying the money bag, and John tells us that he was pilfering. Mm -hmm. And he's the only one from the Jerusalem area, all the other ones from Galilee. This is my friends in Galilee say, we don't trust anybody in Jerusalem. We're just like <laughs> the, uh, you know, to look at the only guy from Jerusalem was Judas. Yeah. You've got Peter's very aggressive and impulsive, mm -hmm. and I think a very good businessman. And Andrew tends to be very pensive and reserved. He does, you don't hear much from him. He's quiet. 
Most of them are for Galilee. Then you've got Nathaniel Bartholomew, who's a very devout man. And Jesus even said in him, there is no guile. Yeah, pure He's, heart. Uh, a, and some were married and others weren't married. So this is a motley crew of yeah. guys. You couldn't get a more diverse group of guys. And, you know, Simon uh, the Zealot, being a revolutionary, typically revolutionaries are uh, they, they, they're visionary. They... Uh, they uh, can argue. They are uh, pretty good on their feet. Uh, you've got Matthew named Levi, who uh, was a fairly successful t- tax collector. So he had to have some smarts about. Oh him. yeah, yeah and um, Judas, he's, he's taking care of the money for the twelve, so he's got to have some smarts about him. Um, uh, what about Peter? Peter was. He gets a bum rap, I think. Uh, I did a talk for Legatus at their um, big. Uh, um, gathering last year. It was done virtually at their summit, but they wanted me to talk about Peter the businessman because Legatus obviously is dealing with a lot of business people. And I portrayed Peter very different than what we think of him because Peter is often thought of as a bumbling fool who makes a, who is just an idiot. He couldn't tie his shoes if he had to. Yeah, country bumpkin. Country bumpkin kind of guy. Yeah. But let's face it, he had his own business. He owned his own fishing boats. He was partners with Zebedee and the family. So they had a big fishing business. Mm -hmm. He had employees. He hired employees to come and work for him. When he came back after Jesus was raised from the dead, they went back up to Galilee and he said, what are we going to do? I don't know. And he got back in his boats and went fishing again. So obviously the business was being run while he was gone, which shows that he's not an idiot. His house and this is when I take people to Capernaum, I show them this. There's the harbor where the boats were and then Peter's house and then there's the synagogue. His house is right in the middle of the synagogue and the harbor where the boats are kept. So that's like having your house next door to the governor. He's got the best real estate in Capernaum, which was probably five, you know, about 5,000 people, I think is, uh, I don't think I'm too far out there, maybe 2,000. You don't really know. Um, But he he had a a nice business and his house was big enough to house Andrew because Andrew lived with them, the family. Yeah. And Jesus and the 12 disciples stayed. Could stay there, large enough. Hold dear Steve. Okay. Uh, music coming up. We'll be back in a minute. Steve Ray, my guest. Matthew, our topic. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Steve Ray. Taking a look at St. Matthew, uh, the gospel writer, the tax collector, the really great convert. Um, is, is there anything in the... I mean, he, we have the gospel of Matthew... Um, do we know what role Matthew played among the twelve? No. Did he? Have, no. We, in, in fact, no special charism or anything. No. In fact, in the Bible, he's only mentioned seven times: two times as Levi, and five times as Matthew, and most every time it's him. The story being told again of him and the at the tax booth, and then he's listed in list of the apostles. So. Yeah. You see his story here, but you don't hear about him doing anything else, really. Um, what you do find is then at after Jesus goes up into heaven, it says the 12 who went to the upper room, and he's listed there. That's okay. the last we hear That's of him. That's the last of it. And we don't know much about what he did after um, hmm. after leaving Jerusalem. We have some hints to that, which we can talk about if you want to, but it's there's not much about him. He, yeah. he In the lists, whenever there's a list, he comes in eighth. So he's not... The, the, right. the most well-known. There's something to be said by the way the list, because it, it even says in Matthew, primary or first 
is Peter. Yeah. And that, that's not just first in the list, but that's primary, primacy right. of right. To Peter. And then who's it end with? Judas Iscariot, yeah. which shows that the list goes down in importance yes. to yes. some degree. So he's right in the middle. He's not in the inner circle, but he's not uh, one of the ignored guys. But he, th- there's not much more about him other than the early fathers of the church are the ones that said that he wrote the gospel. You know, yeah. sometimes people think where it says in the top gospel of Matthew that that's part of the inspired text. Right. It's not. No, it's not. That's tradition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how does that's a Protestant right. know that Matthew wrote Matthew? Because of Catholic tradition. Yeah, that's right. And um, I think it's, it's also interesting that with all the manuscripts that are out there, we don't see the gospel of Matthew with the inscription, Gospel According to Mark. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, it's amazing, the unanimity yep. of the witness. Yep, and it was yeah. early on because even the Didache, which some are saying now is written part of the first century, yep. the Didache, a writing that's there, is quoting him, and mm-hmm. so are some of the early fathers, like Ignatius of Antioch and mm-hmm. Clement, mm-hmm. you know, refer to this gospel. So it's it's very early on. And, uh, well, but we're... we're I don't want to jump into about the gospel yet because we aren't talking about that part yet. But it is that that is what he is known for as an apostle for writing that. Yeah. And uh, putting that down for the Jewish people. Do we know about martyrdom? There's there's hints at it. And Butler's Lives of the Saints sometimes gets quite... um, You know... Overstates what we know. Yeah, you don't know. You just don't know. (laughs) Right. Sometimes they'll say things that others don't say, but um, it, it seems like that he went east. After he wrote the gospel, that he went east to areas like Persia and those kind of places, okay. and that he was eventually uh, killed there. And he his body is in um, in Italy right now. They brought okay. it back, wow. and his body is in Italy. And I see I got it right here. I don't want to misstate it, but it's in... Um, he suffered, uh, the, the St. Paulinus was an okay. early on saint. He mentions that he endured his course in Parthia. He ended his course in Parthia, which is Iran and Ira- uh, okay. Iraq of today. Um, another Fortunatus relates that he suffered martyrdom in Nadabar, a city who's uh, in that area over there east. And uh, he was buried in Parthia. But his relics were brought west. And Pope Gregory VII, in a letter, to the Bishop of Salerno in 1080, that's a thousand years ago, testifies that his bones are kept in the church there in Salerno, and hmm. I have been there. I okay. have been there and prayed at his tomb on the uh, coast of Italy. So the bones were kept there? Yes, and have been for a thousand years. Wow. Okay. That's significant. Yep. Um, we, uh, we accept as part of a tradition that Matthew wrote Matthew. Uh, what's the witness of the tradition? Witness of the tradition is pretty strong. You've got the early writers. I, I like the one by Irenaeus, actually, because Irenaeus, is um, he had a lot to do with me converting, him and Ignatius of, of Antioch. Mm-hmm. But Irenaeus refers to, here's what he says. Um, let me find it here. I want to read it correctly to you. What page? I gave you too many notes here. I, I mean, I wrote, I couldn't, <laughs> once I get started on this, I couldn't stop because it was so fascinating. But he said that it was written the four Gospels. He explains the the writing of them and when they were written. And um, his was very interesting because he said that he wrote it beca- in Hebrew. That the early writers have said yeah. that it was written in Hebrew because 
Matthew was writing to the, his own people yeah. to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. So when you compare the three, the four Gospels, each one has its own audience, yep. has its own emphasis, its own theology. And Irenaeus is, is telling us that he was writing originally that everybody says it, it was written in Hebrew at first yeah, yeah. and then later translated into Greek. But there's no evidence of that yet. Right. But all right. of the early church believed that only in the last hundred years has that been yeah. doubted. But if you look at the other ones, um, here he's trying to prove that Jesus is the king. I think which is also why Matthew is the first gospel. It's the bridge between the between, Old Testament. Between the covenants, yeah. Because he's presenting Jesus as the new Moses, the new Solomon, right. the new David, the new Elijah. He's the new everything. He yeah. is. There's a new mountain. There's yeah. an, Yes, and that's a beauty. When we new take law. Our, yeah, yeah. When we take our people up to Mount Beatitudes, we always have to wait at the gate because we're always the first ones there because <laughs> I don't like waiting in lines. And so we're there, and I explain a little bit. When you hear in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus went up a high mountain and sat and taught the people. And what does he say? Your law says this, but I right. say to you, there will not be one jot nor tittle that will yep. go away. What happens is in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, Moses said that God will raise up from among you a prophet, and it'll be from your own people, and it's not just a prophet, it is the prophet, and when he comes, listen to him. And this was then in Mount, Mount Tabor, the transfiguration. What does God say? This is the one. Listen to him. Right, right. And so now you have Jesus sitting there. And I say to people, who went up a mountain? Moses. And then what did he do? Exodus 18 says he sat and he judged the people. What did Jesus do? He sat and he talked to the people. And what's he talking about? He's reinterpreting the law. Yeah. And so here you have Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new Moses, the prophet who is to come, the Messiah, the king. He's also the son of David. Who's the son of David? Well, originally it was Solomon was the mm -hmm. son of David. And who was he? He was the great king of Israel. They knew that Jesus, even the blind man, Bartimaeus in Jericho, says, son of David. Son of, some, I like to say sometimes it took a blind man to really see. <laughs> And Bartimaeus is saying, son of David, son of David. And this is claiming Jesus as Messiah and king. That's what, this is why I think Matthew is the bridge between the Old and the New Testament. His is first, not necessarily because it was written first, but it was there right. to bridge the gap. This is the new king of Israel. Yeah. He, and it's, that's why it's always talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the right. kingdom, of, right. because he's reestablishing David's kingdom. But it's bigger than David's kingdom now. It's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom yeah. of God. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, of the four Gospels, it's the one that focuses so much on Old Testament uh, Oh, quote, yes, it sure allusions, does. Making sure that there's continuity uh, as between the covenants, even though there's also discontinuity. Absolutely, and that's exactly um, the case. Uh, there, there are 65, there's different people say different things, but I looked on Verbum, and you and I both use Verbum, yeah. and Verbum says that it has a place called where it's citations, or it's called quotations, citations, allusions, or echoes. That's, what, that's how it refers to it. it, it sometimes you, you'll say something, and you're not a direct quote, but you know exactly what you're referring to. And so the the Verbum program, when you do that, has 331 times. Yeah, yeah I said, I, I usually say at least 200. Yeah. 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 That's 331. Is and 65 
clearly done ones. Yeah, but, which are quotations right. and obvious. But allusions. if you really yeah. study it, echoes or using phrases or something. It's, yep. And that's, he is using their Old Testament. He is using their own book to prove to them that this guy you, you killed, yeah. he is the Messiah. He's the king. He's the son of David. He is the one you've been waiting for, and you killed him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's in and also the Gospel of Matthew has the the, the most uh, extensive encounter between Jesus uh, and Peter regarding yeah. uh, the identity of Jesus and also the identity of Peter. And knowing that he's referring to the Old Testament to the kings, that Jesus is the king. So why does he give Peter the keys? Because a king always has a royal steward. That's right. And he gives the royal steward the delegation of carrying the keys. This is all from the Old Testament. So this is why Matthew is the one that explains Jesus as the king giving the keys to his royal steward who's now going to run the kingdom in his absence. Of course, it's going to be Matthew. Luke tells that story too, and Mark, but they don't tell you that. That was comes from Matthew. That comes Mm -hmm. from Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as the king. Mark presents him as a servant. Luke presents him as the ideal man. John mm-hmm. presents him as God. You yeah. have the two opposites, king and servant, man and God. Yeah. And the four yeah. gospels present him that way, each one of those. Yeah. And each one, the, the, the genealogies go along with that too, because what does Matthew do? He's presenting Jesus as the king, so what does he do? I'll go all the way back through David to Abraham. This is the guy. Look at He comes right from Abraham all the way through David, all the way up through the exile to Babylon, all the way till today. He's yeah. the guy. He's got the genealogy to be the king. Mark doesn't have any genealogy. Why? Because who cares what a servant? Oh, Mark doesn't have any. Yeah, Mark genealogy. doesn't yeah. have any because That's you're right. dealing with Jesus as a servant. Who cares what a servant yes, or a slave right, is right, genealogy right. is? Luke, on the idea, presents Jesus to the Greeks in many ways and explains a lot of the um, Jewish terminologies and things, but he's presenting him as the ideal man. So his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. To Adam, right. And John, what's his genealogy? In the beginning it's, it's was the pre-existent. Word. Yeah. <laughs> the Word was with God and the Word was God. Yeah. That's his genealogy. He's yeah. always been pre-existent with the Father. Yeah. yeah. So the four Gospels and, and Matthew's is very distinctive. You read, oh, and also Matthew, since this is year of St. Joseph, Matthew tells you the story of the birth of Jesus yes. from Joseph's point of view. Luke tells you the birth of Jesus from Mary's point yeah. of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Those distinctions are there deliberately. They're part yep. of the literary yep. uh, craft of the evangelist. And uh, they really bears you can, when you become familiar with those stylistic devices and those uh, the criteria they use for selecting, uh, how they're going to, what stories they're going to tell, how they're going to treat those stories. Um, and you you have can to, get so much more out of the text. And you have to read it as a Judean Jew. Yeah. You can't read it as American. You get, right. I mean, you can, but you're not going to get as much out of it. Right. Now, there's, the kingdom of God is mentioned five times, the kingdom of heaven 32 times, and 10 times simply kingdom. Like, you know, we're going to be entering the kingdom or something yes. like that. Yes, yes. Jesus is called the son of David in Matthew. He's born from the Davidic line. He's greater than Solomon. He's greater than Solomon's temple. He builds a new and greater temple, Matthew 16. His Mm -hmm. kingship extends over the 12 tribes, not Mm -hmm. just the Jews, but all the 12. Steve Holder will come back, continue my guest Steve Ray, our topic, Matthew and his gospel.
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Steve Ray. We are looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew himself. Today is the Feast of St. Matthew. Uh, it, it's a really one of the richest books of the New Testament, um, the third uh, third largest, longest. It's the third longest, and, yeah. and it's fun to ask people, first of all, what's the longest book in the Bible yeah. altogether? Everybody says, well, Psalms, it's 150 chapters or something like that. But actually, the book of Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, Psalms, and Genesis is number two. Yeah. By words. Yeah. By yeah. words. Right. Now, the New Testament's kind of fun, too. Luke, he wins hands down. He's got the two longest books. Right. He's almost got half the New Testament. Right. Because right. the Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Uh, people say, well, no, it's not. It's got 24 chapters. Matthew has 28. Yes, but according to, you look at how long the chapters are in Luke. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, the longest book in the Bible, uh, New Testament, and he wrote Acts, which yeah. is the second longest book yeah. in the New Testament, yeah. and Matthew comes in third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Luke Acts are often studied together. Yes, you know, as a single composition. Right. Yeah. So Luke really has almost half the New Testament. Um, let's talk about the date of Matthew. Yes, um, Jesus gives us a remarkable uh, prediction of the destruction of the temple in the Gospel of Matthew. And nobody, n- nowhere in the text does anybody make the apologetic point, which is, look what he said and look what happened. Yes, you which know. you would think would be the case. I would. <laughs> you know, this you want to know that Jesus did it? This is what he told us. Yep. And I was there an eyewitness and heard it. And then, if the book was written after 70 AD, let's establish that for people who don't know, mm-hmm. is that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Right. 70 AD, the Romans came under Titus and they destroyed the temple. They killed, according to Josephus, 1.2 million people and took 92,000 to Rome to build the Colosseum. So if that's the case, and Matthew, a lot of modern scholars will say that it's written after that. It's written later. You know, people collected all of Matthew's sayings and put them into writing and kind of made his gospel for him. But if that's the case, why not say, well, you know, Jesus and predicted this and it actually happened. Right, right. Yeah. But a lot of the skeptics, though, Al, I know that this is one of the reasons they do a later date is because they said Jesus would have had no way of knowing all those things were going to happen. So they it had to be written afterwards to make Jesus look smart. Yeah, they're, they, they have an anti-supernatural bias. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's not... That's not your best reading of right. the data. You know, they're blinded by yep. uh, an assumption, a presupposition, which um, actually distorts the data in front of them. That the Gospels don't indicate the destruction of the temple. They predict it, but they don't tell us it happened. And that's because most conservatives, like me and you and others, would say that the reason it doesn't is because it was written before exactly. the temple was destroyed. Yep. And in fact, that is what the earliest writers say. And the fact that it was already being quoted in the Didache, which some people think was even written before some of the books of the New Testament mm-hmm. were completed, mm-hmm. and quoted by Ignatius of Antioch, who was 107, died. He's already quoting it. And the uh, the early uh, Christians, they believed... Here, here's what, for example, Eusebius, he's quoting Clement, who was a, uh, Peter Linus Cletus Clement, the fourth 
Pope. For Matthew, who had at first preached to the Hebrews, when he was about to go to other peoples, committed his gospel to writing in his native tongue, and thus compensated right. those whom were as obliged to leave for the loss of his presence. So he wrote it in Hebrew for the Jewish people. With, if he's trying to convert and convince the Jewish people, then why would he write it in Greek? Of course, he would write it in the Aramaic right. or Hebrew, the language. Mm-hmm. Um, Eusebius quoting Irenaeus, 185. Matthew published his gospel among the Hebrews in their own language while Peter and Paul were preaching and founding the church in Rome. So this is very early, origin the same in the early 200s, Papias, 85 AD. So Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language, and each one interpreted them as best he could. So this would mean that it had to be written pretty early on for it to have been copied and spread out so that these people could already be quoting it 50 years later or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've got that. And in the Pontifical Biblical Commission, um, I was reading that today, People say anywhere from 50 to 100 A.D., but the, the biblical commission said that even though a preponderance of scholars tried to push it into a later date, it says that they concluded it was 70 AD, before 70, before 70 AD, A.D. because of the destruction of the temple. Exactly yeah. what we're talking, it doesn't mention that. Yeah. There was a, there was a book back in the uh, 1980s by uh, an Anglican bishop, uh, John A.T. Robinson, yes. called Redating the New Testament, that made a big splash by uh, placing, I don't remember it was all the books of the New Testament, but most of the books of the New Testament uh, before 70 A.D. And, um, and you know, th- th- what was funny about that, contra- there's a little con- big controversy, and then it kind of just faded away, but, it, but nobody ever answered, right. nobody ever s- answered the, the, right. the book. And it wasn't like he was a flaming conservative either. Oh, no, he was known as the, the, the honest-to-God uh, yeah. bishop uh, in Anglicanism. Uh, C.S. Lewis even mocked his book by that title. Yeah. Um, he said, I prefer being honest to being honest to God, he said. Um, mocking uh, Bishop Robinson. I didn't know much about him, but I just know that that was a controversy, and it made a lot of sense to me then. And I'm surprised it hasn't, uh, at this point, it hasn't yet carried the day. Uh, It's still the minority position, but it seems to be a growing, slowly growing position. Do you think so? I think so. Uh, I'm always, I've always said, if I'm going to err on the side of the fathers of the church or modern um, skeptical scholarship, yeah. usually, I'm going to err on the side of the early writers. They sure. were much closer to the situation. Right. They right. still had the traditions and the stories being passed around orally and in writing. And if they are saying that it was written early on, yeah. and, um, and it's the same with people who say that Paul didn't write First t- t- and Second Timothy and Titus or maybe even Ephesians and these... Well, pretty soon you, you get so skeptical that why do I even believe it, you know? Right. And... I'm I'm always have firm that Paul wrote those books. Sure, yeah. And he wrote Ephesians, and he wrote those. And the style of writing is different, yes, because Paul's developed over time. He's, de- he's developed, and he uses uh, he he has other people who cooperate with him in the writing of these things, right. and we don't know. Uh, At the very beginning, he's the first two letters he wrote to Thessalonians. He's the people are thinking, well, you know, you told us that the Lord is going to come back, but Granny died, and now we buried her. And what happens to Granny now, Paul? Come on, you said Jesus was going to come right back and take us up with him. And so then he has to explain, well, he's going to come back. But and so that was the big concern. He wasn't concerned about bishops being installed in churches yet right. because they were just starting this. Right. But at the end, the last ones, right before he dies, now he's very concerned about installing bishops and how the church is going to work because he's not going to 
to be here anymore. Well, of course, that's going to be a whole new emphasis at the end of his Church life. Church governance, so, right. Uh, yeah, exactly. So you get the qualifications for deacons in First yeah. Timothy 3. And, right, and so and the same with, with Matthew. He's writing for a certain purpose. He's writing to the people. It's before the temple's destroyed, and uh, this is what the fathers taught. And yeah. if I'm going to err on the side of them or skeptical... Um, Modern times, I'm going to fall off. I'll err on the side of the fathers of the church. Well, I I do think it's it's absolutely stunning that the gospels that we have, the manuscripts that we have, you don't have any confusion in the the existing manuscripts uh, when there is when the ascription is there, a gospel according to uh, Matthew. It's Matthew's gospel that f- comes along. It, you don't have anybody confused saying this is the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, and then you look at it and say, well, no, no, that's Luke. Yeah. You know, you don't see any of that. And it's amazing to me that they, there would be that kind of um, unanimity um, in the inscriptions. So I take those with great seriousness. And that was very early, too. That didn't yes. happen in the 5th or 6th century. No. So that was from the very beginning. Right, right. No, exactly, exactly. So um, New Testament scholarship, it looks to me, when, when uh, I first— uh, became a follower of Jesus in 1974, it was, you had to fight hard to argue that the Gospels were written by the people whose names are attributed uh, to them. So you had the, the, the idea was that, well, they couldn't have, they could not be eyewitnesses. These are not eyewitnesses. But in the, again, in the last 15 years, uh, New Testament scholarship has had new respect for this idea of eyewitness testimony in the Gospels. What, what I wrote my book on John's Gospel, that's that I wrote for the, with Ignatius Press on John's Gospel, I make a big point that John wrote this book because when you go out on a fishing boat, which I did all night long, I went out just for I love to live the Bible in the Holy Land and experience these guys' sure, lives sure. to kind of put myself in their sandals. And I went fishing all night on the Sea of Galilee with these two Jewish fishermen who couldn't even hardly speak English. And I'm out there all night long pulling these fish in out of the shore and asking them a thousand <laughs> questions. And then I go back and read the Gospel of John. And I'm telling, I, I told my wife, I said, this is written by a guy who did just exactly what I just did. Yeah. This is written by a guy who knows what it's like to fish yeah. out there. Yeah. This is an eyewitness. And there's no way that that book could have been put together by a committee. Yeah. John wrote his book at the end of his life. So the way I like to describe this is Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to bring to your memory everything that I've told you. That promise isn't to me. That was to John. And John was probably 15, 16, 17 years old. And now he's an old, old man. And the Holy Spirit has been teaching him and he's been malleable to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, I remember one time at Steubenville, I gave a talk and I had to speak right after Father Groeschel, and it's just not fair <laughs> to have to. And I said, right. you know, if, if I say something, people are going to say, oh, if he says the exact same words, people are going to go, oh, why? <laughs> because of his venerable right. age and he's been his whole life. Yes. I'm just this young guy. So John, imagine John and Matthew, these guys who had been with Jesus that had the promise that he was going to teach them. And then you're going to tell me that these books were put together by a committee 
a hundred years later, it isn't. It's not the case. The Holy Spirit. And another painting by Caravaggio is the. It's called the Inspiration of Matthew. I think mm-hmm. it is where there's an angel there. I've got that. Yeah. And he's yeah. writing with the heavenly yeah. input. It's one of my favorite oh, pictures. Yeah. It is. It's just yeah. beautiful. These guys were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what the Holy Spirit had been teaching them from what they had heard Jesus say. Yeah. Yeah, not us. We didn't have. And you uh, visit the, the Holy Land 180 times, and so you've had plenty of opportunity to also look at the archaeology of the land. What are some of the big finds archaeologically that play into the New Testament? Well, I I love the one um, even in the Old Testament up in Dan, which is on the border with uh, Lebanon, and and in my movie on Elijah, we spend a lot of time up there. And there was a, a stele, S-T-E-L-E, mm-hmm. that mentions the dynasty of Dawood, David. Right, right. And it's it's dated, that stele, that stone with the inscriptions. Is that the Yeah, it's the one from Dan. Yes. Dan. Okay. And it, it was just discovered recently, but it refers to the dynasty of Dawood, David, and it's dated 3,000 years ago. Which yeah. is when David was here. That's see? right. So this, right. people had said that David was just an idealized fiction. King, there he is. Part of the myth of origin yes. of ancient Israel. And also Pontius yeah. Pilate. There was no um, archaeological evidence of all this, but then they found a step at Caesarea Maritime. They flipped over a step, and underneath from the first century was engraved Pontius Pilate, <laughs> procurator of Tiberius. Right. And then there's egg on the face of all of the skeptics who want to just dismiss the Bible. And more and more of that is coming out all the time. Caiaphas's ossuary with his bones. And it just goes on and on. And the coins, the coins will, you know, I have a whole collection. I've got like a little museum at home of stuff I've brought and found and collected. I've got the sling stones from David's time. I'll tell you about that sometime. 3,000-year-old sling stone from the cave of Adullam. Mm -hmm. But the the archaeology more and more proves that the Bible is true, it's historical, it's trustworthy. And these guys were eyewitnesses who wrote Matthew and John. They, yep. they were writing by the inspire, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they wrote it early. Steve, got to go. Thanks oh, so much. I talk love talking to you. This is fun stuff. <laughs> Steve Ray, learn more at CatholicConvert.com.